Hello everyone, my name is Brad. And I'm Denise. We are the host of World's True Crime Podcast. Every Monday, we release an episode researched by me about the most heinous criminals throughout history from across the globe. And then every Thursday, we will release an episode from me about disappearances, UFOs, the unexplained, and strange history. To lighten up the episode, we take part in movie trivia at the time of the incidents. You can find us everywhere you listen to podcasts and find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We also can be found at worldstruecrime.com. So just remember, everybody, the world's not always as it seems. No, it's not. Bye, everyone. Bye. Hi, Bailey. Hello, Mom. Welcome back. This is episode 30 of the True Crime B&B podcast. And hello to all of you out there. We have really been getting some exciting people in different parts of the world listening, and it's awesome. We're at 31 countries now. 31 countries, 45 states, Mm -hmm. plus D.C. And thank you to Slovakia. We Mm -hmm. just got word today that we are number 17 in Slovakia in True Crime. Yeah, and that's very exciting. So now we ranked in Portugal and Slovakia. That's right. So... So what do you have today? Today, I first want to give a shout out to our friends, Jenny and Dee Dee, over at Murder on My Street, because Love last them. time, yes, last time I did a story that they covered, I didn't know I did. This time, I'm going in fully acknowledging they have covered this story about a year ago, and you should listen to them too. Because they always do a great job too. They're probably better at research than I even am, and they have a lot more time to tell the story, so they might be more detailed. So even right, go check it out. Because they're not doing this. two stories in one episode. Right. Know. I tend to kind of just stick to the main bulletin points, but go listen to them for a more detailed description. Okay. I'm going to tell you about the disappearance of Sage Smith. Okay. Sage Smith was born a male and then transgendered to a female in her teenage years. Okay. She was born December 13th, 1992 in Charlottesville, Virginia. Okay. Her parents divorced almost immediately after she was born. So, a couple months old, never knew her parents to be together, basically. Kind of like you. Kind Yeah, I was going to say, can relate. <laughs> her parents divorced, and then her father, almost immediately after she was born, ended up in prison with a drug charge. Oh, jeez. So, she stayed with her mom for a little bit, but then her mom was struggling. And I don't know if that's with mental issues or if that was also with drugs. But she ended up not being deemed fit to have a child, so Sage ended up going to her paternal grandmother, Lolita. Okay. That's who she grew up with from the age of three onward. And finally, her mother, Latasha, got remarried and ended up getting custody of Sage back again later on in her teens. However, that didn't last very long because she was again deemed unfit and somehow Sage was put into foster care until she was 18 years old. That's a rough situation for all of those people to have to keep going through that cycle. Mm -hmm. And then to not only be dealing with that, but on top of that, your identity struggle, I can't imagine the amount of pressure and stress that would put on a person. Well, Sage is an African-American, correct? Yes, Sage is an African-American. that aspect in this country is already Mm -hmm. challenging. Mm -hmm. The aspect of the parental chaos is challenging. And then the aspect of figuring out your gender identity is also Mm -hmm. a little bit of chaos. So she's had a lot to deal with. Yes. So in her teens, Sage did end up coming out to her grandmother while she was living with her. And... Her grandmother was very accepting, basically said, you're not telling me anything I didn't already know, sweetheart. And was, That's amazing. Good yeah. for her. So she's been on her side this entire time. And then she eventually, later in her teens, decided she was not a gay man. She was actually a transgender female. Okay. 
She graduated high school in 2011, and then March 2012, she got an apartment in Charlottesville and asked two of her friends from childhood to move in with her. One was named Aubrey, and one was named Shakira. Aubrey, she'd only known a couple of years from high school, but then Shakira, she had known her, she lived in the neighborhood with her when she lived with her grandmother. Mm-hmm. So they'd known each other since they were basically eight. Okay. She was now thriving with her newfound freedom, and even discovered a queer-friendly bar in the neighborhood. So they would go there a lot. She became the life of the party, was constantly going out, meeting up with people, whatever. She was just very open about herself. Right. The girls were also very close, and they were very on it, like the kind of friends you want to have. Her friend Shakira, when she did an interview one time, said that she had once gone to an older man's apartment to hook up with him when she was like 18, 19-ish, and she told Sage this, that she would be at this guy's apartment, and Sage didn't like it. She was like, I don't understand his intentions with you. I want to make sure you're safe. So while Shakira is over at this guy's house... The guy excuses himself and goes into the kitchen to grab them more drinks. And then Shakira hears a little light knocking on the window and turns. And Sage is like, are you okay? Like, mouthing. Like, is everything good? And she had literally stopped by this dude's apartment just to make sure everything was going smoothly. And peeked in the window. And peeked in the window to be like, (laughs) are you okay? Do this if you need help. Like, you know? Wow. And so that's the kind of friend she was. That's amazing. I mean, most, most friends wouldn't go to that extent. You would, but other <laughs> I was going to say, then there's a time I, I made you find the dude's landlord, and we tried contacting them, and I'm like, okay, we're going to show up in an hour if she doesn't answer me. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, she was just a really, seemed like an awesome friend. Also at this time, she began attending cosmetology school and had landed a job at a local salon until she graduated from the school. She was sweeping up and just getting her foot in the door, stuff like that. Until November 19th, 2012, the three girls hosted a party at their apartment, which was not out of the ordinary. Like I said, they were constantly having people over and having events together. Right. During this party, some random girl showed up and started picking a fight with one of her roommates. They never clarified which one. The girl that showed up was trying to get her roommate to go outside and fight her. And then Sage ended up getting involved and told her, you need to go. Get out of here. She pushed her out of the apartment. Don't come to my house and pick a fight with me. Yeah, get out. I mean, I've been to apartments where there were parties and I didn't know whose apartment it was, Mm -hmm. but I would find out. I don't just go there and start a fight with them. If I don't like the party, I leave. Yeah, you go, you see, oh, that person's here. I'm just going to take myself elsewhere. You know, it's the mature thing to do. Yeah, grow up. But Sage ended up getting involved and kicking her out of the apartment and then ended up having the police called on her that night. (sighs) Afterwards, Shakira and Sage got into a huge heated argument because... Sage was mad that Shakira didn't have her back. She basically was put in the task of getting this person out of their apartment and result got the police called on her. And she was mad that Shakira didn't stick up for her and also help get that person out of the apartment and end the confrontation. Yeah, it should have been a united front. They got in a huge fight. That was November 19th. And November 20th, 2012, Shakira decided she was going to leave for a couple days, go stay at a friend's place, and then cool off for a bit. Okay. But at this point, only Sage and Aubrey are living in this apartment. On November 20th, Sage made a phone call to her father, and it's not really known exactly what that conversation entailed, because he's out of prison at this point, but he told the police that she was just asking him for some money and telling him about her plans to go to her grandmother's house for Thanksgiving coming up. Go to her grandmother's house for Thanksgiving? Yes. Okay. And so she had plans to go with her family to Thanksgiving in the next couple of days. Later on in that day, Sage went, and I guess Aubrey was taking a nap on the couch in the living room, and so Sage went, woke up Aubrey, and told her that she was leaving and she had a date with somebody. She never clarified who with, and 
Aubrey said she goes on dates all the time. It's not a big deal. So I just told her, okay, have fun. I'll see you tomorrow, I guess. Right. That night also, Sage was seen by her stepsister, Kiara, and she passed her on West Main Street. And I'll upload a map where all of these locations are onto our Instagram. So the red dot is where Sage's apartment is. Yeah. And then you can see there's a road going down. And then right here, that line where all the black dots are, that's the road where her sister saw her. It's right about there. Okay, so it's like, what, eight blocks away? They said it's like a 15-minute walk, 20-minute walk. Sage had been seen, obviously, Aubrey saw her leave and start walking towards that location. And then while she was on that main road where all the black dots were, her stepsister saw her, and she said she was on the phone with somebody, so she couldn't stop and talk to her. But she just waved at her. Sage waved back, and then they just kept going. Okay. But that is the last time Sage was ever seen. Is at 6.30 p.m. by her sister on West Main Street near an Amtrak train station. Hmm. The next day on November 21st, Aubrey woke up and discovered that Sage had never come home from the previous night. So she obviously tried to call her cell phone. Hey, did you stay the night with whoever you want her out with or what? Right. But the phone went immediately to voicemail. And so she kind of waited a couple more hours and then Aubrey started to get a bad feeling in her stomach. So mm-hmm. she called Lolita, which is... The grandmother. The grandmother, yes. And Lolita also had not heard from her, had no idea about this date and everything. She didn't know anything. They decided together that if Sage didn't show up for Thanksgiving, which was the next day, so on the 22nd of November, they were going to go ahead and call the police and let them know that Sage had not come home. Okay. Okay. On November 22nd, Thanksgiving, she never did arrive. Nobody in the family heard from her. She, it wasn't like her to go missing for more than 24 hours. Right, she was independent, but she wasn't just somebody's going to disappear, disappear for days at a time. Yeah, she wasn't... She's showing up at the guy's house for her friend on a date because she knows bad shit happens on things like this. Right. She's not... And she's not going to leave her family wondering what happened to her for two, three exactly. days. They decided to call the police. The police filed for a subpoena for her cell phone records, but that was going to take a couple of days, and her family knew that they did not have time. So they decided to go ahead and hack into all of her accounts themselves. Okay, so they knew her passwords? Or? They just sat there and guessed until they got it. It took them hours, but they figured it out themselves and still got it faster than the police got the records. Well, you figured mine out in like three minutes, so. That's true. <laughs> they ended up hacking into her cell phone account and found the records of all the calls and texts that she had placed. Okay. And her last call was to someone who was unknown, to the family at least, and had an out-of-state area code. So they didn't know who this could be. She didn't really have any friends not from the area. Yeah, but she was at the Amtrak station. But she was at the Amtrak station, exactly. Her dad took the information that they found in her cell phone and put it on a Facebook post so that all of her friends, anybody who's friends with her, could see it and be like, hey, do you maybe know who this belongs to? See, dad came through. Dad came through. And one of the friends came through and said, I know that phone number. It's a friend that we have, a mutual friend we have named Eric McFadden, who lived nearby in Charlottesville. Okay. So he just kept his same phone number when he moved to Charleston. Either from that, somewhere else. that wasn't really clear because it kind of seemed like he might have been using one of those texting apps. Oh. Because this guy, Eric McFadden, was in the closet at the time and was either gay or bisexual we're not sure but he had a girlfriend at the time who he lived with so i think it's kind of based on all everything that everybody said it kind of seemed like he had a fake number on one of those apps so that his girlfriend wouldn't see it if she were to pick up his phone okay type of thing Mm -hmm. yeah so either way they knew for a fact they had it in their contacts as eric mcfadden eric mcfadden was a 21 year old and while sage was 19 at this time 
and had been exploring sexuality, like I said, even though he had a girlfriend that lived with him. He had met Sage online. Apparently, she made one of the casual encounters post on Craigslist, and that's how he'd found her. Mm-hmm. So they started texting and talking, then they met up a couple of times, and they had been planning to meet up on the 20th, the day that she went missing, at a Hamptons Inn. He had a room there, which is right down the street from the train station where she was last seen. Okay. November 24th, Eric's girlfriend, who was out of town at the time, they shared this apartment together, but she was not in the city. She hadn't heard from him since, like, the 20th, when Sage went missing. So she contacted the police on November 24th and said, hey, can you go check on my boyfriend? He's not getting back to us. He's not answering his phone or anything. So now Eric is a missing person. Okay. They go into her apartment and they check it out. They don't see him anywhere. They don't have any symbol that he may have left in a hurry or anything. But they did discover that he had not shown up for work for the past three days. And they also discovered a receipt in the apartment from November 22nd at a CVS. So they went to that CVS and pulled the surveillance footage from there. And he was seen on that, but not with Sage or anything, just him. So he was at least alive and well November 22nd. And then finally, on November 25th, he got back in contact with his girlfriend. He called her or something. Okay. And he told her, I am currently in Washington, D.C. And then he tells her, I need some money so I can get home. And so she sends him over some cash. Like, okay, well, the police want to talk to you, dude. I don't know what's going on, but you're wanted. What the hell are you doing in Washington, D.C.? Yeah, that was never really answered. So he tells them, okay, I'm going to go ahead and catch a bus back to Charlottesville. Charlottesville soon. And I'll talk to the police then. But then, on November 27th, he contacts the police himself saying, Hey, I didn't end up coming back to Virginia. I'm actually in New York City now, but I'll talk to you guys on the phone. And they're kind of like, well, I guess we'll take what we can get, but we'd really like you to come in because you were like the main suspect of this Well, at, le- at the very least, he's a strong person of interest. Right, exactly. So- They kind of interviewed him as much as he could, and then at this point, Eric admits to the police to having plans to meet up with Sage. He's like, yeah, everything you read in the text messages, 100%. We had plans to go meet up at this inn. We were going to hang out, hook up, whatever, but she never showed up, and so I just got annoyed, and I left. And left the state and went to D.C. and And then ran off to New York City. It's not that far from D.C. It's right across the border. But at the same time, you're going further and further and further away from Yeah, but is this normal behavior for him to just leave and go to another big city? It's just on the spur of the moment? He was kind of a couch surfer, it seems like. Like, he'd been living, for the most part, with his girlfriend at her apartment. But it seems like... That's what he's always done. He just kind of, whoever will take him, will go. So he's been kind of a a bag in the wind. (laughs) Yeah, he's just wherever it takes him is where he ends up, and that's... Okay. So I wouldn't say it's not usual, but it's just the fact that he's like, oh, no, I'll come meet up with you guys, and then, oh, well, I'm actually five hours further (laughs) now. It's like... Yeah. It makes no sense. Then again, on November 29th, Eric's girlfriend told police he would be taking a bus home finally to Charlottesville, but then she received an email about half an hour before that bus was supposed to leave from New York City saying that he changed his mind. And after this, absolutely nobody has had any contact with Eric ever since. And that was in 2012. This seems a little bit suspicious. A little Brian Laundrie-ish. A little Brian Laundrie-ish, because yeah. it's not like he ever made any real attempt to answer anybody's questions, and he just booked it out of there. Right, and the fact that he's, oh yeah, we were going to meet up, and then she just didn't show up. Then why are you running? Yeah. And Wouldn't then, you be like, oh my god, she went missing? Yeah, I want to help out. Let me come home and yeah, tell you what me, I know. Let me come and help find her. Yeah. On December 3rd, 2012, police got a notice 
from the bank that somebody had been using one of Sage's credit cards. Oh. They went to the store, like a grocery store of some kind. Okay. And watched the surveillance footage this time and realized that they knew exactly who the person was in the video. It was one of her roommates, the one who was laying on the couch and was the last person to ever see her alive other than her stepsister, Aubrey. Wow. Aubrey was using her credit card at the store. The police brought in Aubrey to confront her about this information, and Aubrey claimed that they were very close and would often use each other's things. So without even thinking, she already had one of her cards in her wallet and just used it at the grocery store to buy food for the whole house. Two months or a month and a half later, she just suddenly decided she needed food. To buy for the roommates? On her missing roommate's credit card. Yep. That sounds a little fishy to me. Yeah, it's a little suspicious. That was really all they had on Aubrey so far, but that kind of raised some flags about, well, you're the last person to see her alive. In 2015, police ruled out Eric as a suspect because in their eyes, he had no means of transportation. He had no car. He didn't even have a place of his own. All he had was his girlfriend's apartment. And The way they saw it, there was no waterways nearby that he could just dump her. They did a grid search. They had sniffer dogs out and all the landfills and everything. And their way of putting it is just, how would he have gotten her out of the city to hurt her or anything like that without any of these? And I kind of get the point, but unless she went with him voluntarily, like until... They totally ruled him out. So they ruled him out, but again, he's still missing. What are they going to do otherwise, other than... Yeah. I mean, they still wanted him to speak to him. He was still a person of interest because he might have seen her, but other than that... But it's just so weird how Mm -hmm. he just bolted. Just bolted right after she disappeared. Yeah. In 2016, so a year after that, police got a call from a random anonymous person to say that they had seen Sage in Shakti, Virginia, which is 300 miles away. They followed up on this. They found the person that everybody thought was Sage, or at least the person who had called it in, and realized they knew this person too because that was her other roommate, Shakira. Who was mad and left and... Wasn't there in the apartment at the time of her disappearance. Yeah. Right, but that was also fishy. But that's also weird. Yeah. So now it's a lot of fishy people in this story. But my whole thing is, were they in this together or something? Because this is a lot of people having weird... Acting weird immediately after her disappearance. 300 miles away. What are the chances that somebody calls on your friend that is missing and says, I think I saw her and now it's you. Yeah. Looks just like her. Yeah. Bizarre, if nothing else. I mean, were they, was it like the same hairstyle or what What about them made them think it was the same person? I don't person? know. After this, Shakira then decides to turn on her roommate, Aubrey. Good grief. So they bring in Shakira to talk about it. Shakira tells them at the time, Aubrey had been acting strange and not telling the whole truth to the police after Sage's disappearance. So she said that Aubrey had continued using her stuff, like her credit cards and all the stuff in her room and just borrowing her clothes and stuff, and had even started wearing her wigs around town. So I don't know if maybe Shakira had stolen the wigs and was just trying to push it off on Aubrey, or that's my biggest theory on why she looked exactly like her or whatever, but... Well, I mean, some wigs are so distinctive. Well, yeah, and with wigs, it's not like regular hair where you wear it a different style every day. Right. Wigs, you do one style and it, you can just leave it at that style exact same for years and yes. nobody would know. So That's why they have multiple wigs. Yes. <laughs> that I just thought that was weird too. That is weird. Sage's stepsister Kiara, the one who had been the last to see her on the street on her way to that date, also told police that she had been very 
weary of Aubrey ever since she met her because she had always acted very jealous of Sage throughout their entire friendship and she just didn't like it. She got a bad feeling about it. Okay. This kind of brought more suspicion onto Aubrey, but she still claims that she told everything she knows and that she had nothing to do with this. But then Shakira retracted her statement about Aubrey being weird and acting strange after the disappearance and said that maybe she was just mourning differently than she expected and it wasn't as weird as she thought. I, I don't know who to believe in any of this. There's just a lot of weird behavior by people that, in a vacuum, Mm -hmm. it might be weird. When you combine it all together, it seems weird because there's so much of it. Yeah. And there's so much of it that's different, but it's like, it all started at the same time. If two of these happened at once, it would be like, okay, that's kind of weird. But now all three of the people that are closest to her in her life... The day or whatever after she disappeared. One is seen looking exactly like her, and another one is using her credit cards. What the hell is happening here? Yeah, you're right. I mean, I agree with you. It seems really fishy. Just a little closure. We don't... We still don't know in this case got super overlooked in the media and we just want to keep her name out there and just not let it die. Wow. They, in 2017, did, however, change their minds about Eric and he is, once again, the prime suspect. They're searching for him again. In 2019, Eric's family finally filed a missing persons report for him, but nothing additional has come to light after that. And a lot of people find this strange because they think, like Brian Laundrie, maybe the family didn't file a missing persons report because he wasn't actually missing to them until recently. Right. Maybe he had been contacted them, emailing them, and now he's fallen off the map, and now they're like, oh, I just thought we already had one out. Whoops. Yeah. But now they're filing it. So that does... That could be. I will post all of the pictures onto our Instagram account of everybody involved in this, as well as the Crime Stoppers. They have a tip line, of course. So if you know anything or if you look into it and you maybe recognize some of these people, because apparently everyone's missing, we don't... (laughs) (laughs) You can feel free to contact the Crime Stoppers tip line at 434-977-4000. What do you got for me this week? I have a story about a badass. Well, you usually do. <laughs> Wait till you hear this story. Okay, okay. Susan Walters is the name of my subject today. Mm-hmm. She was born in 1955. Her mother was a homemaker. Her father was a cook in the Air Force. And they never had an especially happy marriage. By the time that Susan was in second grade, her parents had separated. Okay. Over the years, her parents shuffled her and her siblings from Colorado to Arizona to California to Nevada, and the children were constantly changing homes, getting sent back and forth between parents who ever had custody at the time Mm -hmm. and different schools. So despite all this chaos in her young life, Susan never doubted that she was loved. She always knew that her parents loved her. They just didn't want to be together, Mm -hmm. and they were struggling to find their own places in the world. So she grew up to have a fun, boisterous, outgoing, and take-charge personality. And, you know, a lot of kids who go through divorce at a young age don't necessarily come out with that kind of confidence, but she did. She was strong, and she was fun, and people really just enjoyed being around her. Mm -hmm. Susan decided to use her good brain, her smarts, her self-control, her ability to perform under less-than-perfect conditions, and put it towards a career that would utilize all of those factors. So, first she became a licensed practical nurse, and then she later went on to become a registered nurse. In the early 80s, when she was in her late 20s, she moved to Oregon, finally settling in Portland and totally focusing on her career. By 1988, her family and friends wanted to encourage her to open up her heart to dating somebody. 
They knew that she felt like some people would look past her because she was a little bit overweight, but everybody that knew her knew her vibrant and fun-loving personality would be more than enough for her to find someone to spend her time with. Mm -hmm. So they put together an ad in the Willamette Week newspaper. The ad read in part, Someone different, single white female, 33, overweight but not over life, seeks single male who wants more out of a relationship than just slender. Active healthcare professional, enjoys exploring the Northwest, interested in conversation, good times with someone who is intelligent, thoughtful, and full of humor, must be emotionally and fiscally mature. If you are seeking a bright, funny lady who is adventurous enough to advertise, then please reply. And it had her contact information at the newspaper. I love that. We love That's a woman the kind of knows. confidence that she has, yes, right? she knows what she wants and she's not taking any less, and I love it. Yes. <laughs> So Susan received a number of replies, and she sorted through them based on their responses and their ability to pique her interest. Mm -hmm. One that she found interesting was named Mike Kuhnhausen, who told her that he was interested in enjoying nature, including walking the ape caves at Mount St. Helens and sunset walks on the beach, which is pretty cliche, but, you know, whatever. Back in the 80s, not that much. It was even cliche in the 80s. Okay. <laughs> After some correspondence, they decided to, that they were going to talk on the phone, and Susan thought he had a really nice voice. They talked about deep and interesting things, and he impressed her. They spoke on the phone for over 100 hours and finally decided that they should meet in person. Yikes. I know. 100 hours on the phone. That's kill terrifying. Me first. Just kill me. <laughs> Their first meeting was in February of 1988 in a public place where they met up to feed ducks and squirrels. They continued seeing one another, doing adventurous things, hiking, getting out into nature, spending time together doing anything outdoors. Before the end of 1988, they decided to drive down to Reno, Nevada to get married. Susan looked at the trip as symbolic. While Mike liked to play slot machines, she figured that getting married was as big a gamble as any other. <laughs> and that's why they chose Reno. Uh, I love her so far. <laughs> Okay. Unfortunately, like many relationships, he was giving her the side of himself that he thought she would like. Yeah, you portray what yes. you wait a while for the bad parts to come out. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Or for this facade that you're portraying to fall off. Yeah. Unfortunately, once they were married, the adventures quickly dropped off. Mike didn't want to make the effort anymore, and their initial bloom of affection didn't last very long. Susan started to find out things about Mike that weren't very comforting. He had told her he had seen combat in Vietnam, but his military records listed him as a switchboard operator. She discovered that Mike really didn't know what it was to be happy. He had a bad attitude. His outlook was always pessimistic. And although they were okay financially, he hounded her about every little purchase she made. They didn't end up having any children, which I guess in the end was probably a blessing yeah, for them. Yeah, seriously. He was constantly chain-smoking and drinking diet soft drinks all during his waking hours. But she was working as an emergency room trauma nurse, and he was supervising the janitorial services for an adult video entertainment company. Mm -mm. He bugged her constantly, wanting to know every detail of where she was going and what she was doing and who she was seeing and what money she was spending. He became cold and unaffectionate. She would go to kiss him, and he would belch in her face. She was sick of it. Sick of it! Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's just gross. Something tells me she's not the one that's going to snap, but I, at this point, would totally understand if she were. <laughs> Christ. She cared about him because of their history, but after 17 years of this devolving relationship, Susan was done and wanted him gone. She wanted to be happy again. 
So in September 2005, she told him he had to leave, and so he moved out and into his father's house. For the first year, things went along okay. Susan was working hard at the hospital because people in the emergency room sometimes come in under the influence of drugs or they become violent from fear or from pain. Mm -hmm. She learned how to manage people at their worst. Mm -hmm. She could hold people down while they were going through drug withdrawals. She had helped crack open chests to perform heart massages. She had disarmed injured or violent men. So for these events, she had gone through self-defense training to handle all of these situations as well as how to handle herself in the event that, say, a patient grabbed her from behind or mm -hmm. got her into a headlock. Yeah. She doubted whether she would ever use any of it outside the emergency room, but she dutifully just continued the training every time it came up. On September the 6th, 2006, Susan had been at work all day mm -hmm. after her nursing job of nearly three decades. So she left the hospital. She stopped at the hair salon, just kind of winding down for the evening. She just kind of took her time getting home. She entered the back door of her little blue house just after 6.30 p.m. She turned off the beeping alarm system, and then she went to the front door. She opened it. She went out and collected her mail, and she just kind of stood for a few minutes in front of the house looking through what came in the mail that day. Mm -hmm. And then she turned and went back into the house. As she did, a man came flying from behind the bedroom door towards her. And she instantly, I mean, as a nurse, I'm sure you have to be aware of 100 million things at the same time. Yeah. She instantly recognized that he was wearing rubber gloves and wielding a hammer. Part of her trauma management training kicked in, reminding her instinctively that a person with a blunt object has less power if they have less room to swing it. Mm-hmm. And that's just plain physics right there. But yeah. rather than try to outrun him, she pushed her body into him. So she's crowding this guy. Smart, yeah. He still managed to hit her on the left temple with the hammer on his first swing, and she screamed at him, Who are you, and what do you want? Oh, so it's not her husband? It's No, like... it's not her husband. She doesn't know this man. Oh. He didn't answer. He didn't waver. He didn't stop trying to attack her, and he was a good five inches taller than she was. But Susan was smart, and she understood enough about physics to know that even the strongest person can still be taken down if you leverage your strength and or your body weight correctly. Mm -hmm. So she slammed all of her body weight using all of her strength and all of her fury up against this man. He barked out, you're strong. And he responded by pushing Susan back into the wall of her bedroom. Susan heard that statement about her strength and she's like, fuck yeah, I'm strong. And she used it as her rallying cry. She realized suddenly that he was not there to rob her or even to rape her. He was there to kill her. And she had no idea who he was or why he was trying to kill her, but she was resolute. She shoved him again, and as she did, she managed to wrestle the hammer out of his grasp. She knew that to save herself, she had to do whatever was necessary. So she swung the hammer three or four times, hitting him on the head, before he managed to grab it back and get it away from her again. Mm -hmm. As he held on to the hammer, Susan used both of her hands to grip and squeeze his airway. His face turned red, and she kept squeezing. His face turned purple. It started to turn blue. At this point, Susan thinks, okay, maybe I can get away. Mm-hmm. As she started to run out of the bedroom, the man got up and he caught her, spun her back towards him again, and punched her in the face. Her lips split open. He punched her again, and she fell down to the floor. As she looked up at him, she saw that he was holding the hammer again, and he was about to kill her with it while she was down on the floor. Mm. He had all of the advantage at this point. Yeah. But Susan was no quitter, and she was not going to give up. And she managed to wrap herself around his lower body and drag him back down onto the floor again. She needed the hammer out of his hands, and so she started biting him. Her thought was that she could leave dental marks on his body so that if he did manage to kill her, 
there would still be evidence that might help to identify him as her killer. Mm -hmm. So she bit him. She bit his arm. She bit his side. She bit his thigh. She even bit his genitals right through the zipper of his pants. Ooh, and that's metal on top of it, too. Yeah. Ouch. Probably pulled a few pubes out. I hope so. (laughs) Oh, Lord. She was trying to reach into his pockets as they scuffled on the floor, and she was grabbing, trying to reach for anything, a wallet or an ID or any kind of thing that might identify him, Mm -hmm. that she could snatch out of his pocket and fling it under a bed or under a piece of furniture, something that he wouldn't recognize to pick up and get before he escaped. Mm -hmm. She knew that she was the underdog here, and she was setting up for the police to have something to work with. It's always so heartbreaking when people have to go to the place of, I'm probably not going to make it through this. But let me leave something for them to find. Yeah. This death match went on for 14 minutes. Just think of how long 14 minutes is when someone is trying to kill you. And she just got home from how long shift? Probably 12 hours. Right. That's... mm. Both of them now, after 14 minutes into this death match, they're both on the floor outside of the bedroom door. Susan had exhausted this man just as much as he had exhausted her. Both of them were laying on their sides, and this relentless woman threw her leg over the top of the man, climbed up on top of him, sitting on his chest, put her forearm down on his neck, Mm -hmm. and put all her weight into him. She yelled, Tell me who sent you here, and I will call you a fucking ambulance. Because at this point, you know who's going to win this? Rather than give her what she asked for, he just growled at her. Of course, I don't know how he could talk at this point either, because she's literally got all of her weight on his Yeah, but you can mouth something. Well, I don't think he tried. He just tried to be... Sounds not like he did, but... No. She leaned in and tightened her grip around his neck until he stopped moving. As soon as he was still, she grabbed the hammer and ran next door to the neighbor's house who called 911. They told the 911 operator that Susan thought he might be dead. And of all people, Susan should know. Mm-hmm. When the police arrived, they went next door to Susan's house and found the attacker lying on the floor where Susan had choked him out. He wasn't breathing, and he couldn't be revived. The man had been carrying a wallet with his identification. His name was Ed Haffey. He was 59 years old. The police took Ed's body out of the house, did a search of the house to find any evidence that might explain why he was trying to kill Susan, mm-hmm. and left. His autopsy talks report later indicated that he had an extremely high, nearly lethal level of cocaine in his system. Police started digging into Ed Haffey's past to try to understand this crime and why it had happened. Haffey was a Vietnam veteran, and he had a long list of previous arrests, as well as one particularly disturbing conviction. In 1994, he had pled guilty to conspiracy to commit aggravated murder, for the 1991 hit on his 39-year-old ex-girlfriend, Georgia Lee Dutton, who had been brutally murdered and dumped in the Umpqua River. He had spent nine years in prison and had been released at the end of November 2003. Now, three years later, he was in Susan's house trying to kill her. What was the connection? The day after the attack, Susan needed to get some belongings from the house because she didn't want to stay there reasonably so. Yeah, you probably never feel safe there again. So she asked her friend Helen to go with her to pack a bag for her to be away short term until she could figure out what she was going to do. While they were there, Helen was looking around to see if there was anything that was missing or anything unusual that maybe the police wouldn't have known was unusual for Susan's house. And she did find something. In the basement, Helen found a backpack that she knew wasn't normally there. Okay. The out-of-place backpack contained a bottle of Hershey's chocolate syrup, diabetes pills, which seemed to cancel each other out, a day planner, $200 in cash, and a pay stub made out to Ed Haffey. 
So this is obviously Ed Haffey's backpack. I'm just so confused with all the objects, but okay, continue. I know. I I don't know what the chocolate syrup and diabetes pills are all about, but... Inside the day planner for two days prior to the attack was an entry noted, Call Mike, with a phone number. So the ex-convict, Haffey, had been released from prison in 2003 and in 2004 had come looking for a job at an adult video entertainment company where he was hired to clean floors. Hmm. As police looked further into the attacker, it was determined that the mic noted in the day planner had been marked down with the new cell phone number that belonged to Susan's estranged husband, Mike Kuhnhausen. Hmm. So Susan's estranged husband was Ed Haffey's supervisor. That is, he had been until Mike Kuhnhausen had lost his job several weeks earlier. He had no home of his own, and he thought that Susan was the only source that he had to get any money. But he also knew that after making Mike move out, Susan had changed her life insurance policy so that her brother was now her beneficiary, so killing Susan wouldn't have given Mike any kind of a life insurance payout. But since they were only separated and hadn't yet changed the house deed, if Susan died, Mike would inherit their $300,000 house, which was fully paid for, thanks to Susan. Okay. So Mike had hired Ed Haffey two years earlier at the adult video company. By August 2006, Mike had already decided to arrange for Susan to be killed, and two different witnesses later came forward as having been approached by both Haffey and Kuhnhausen and had been offered $5,000 to help Haffey in the murder. Both of them had refused. So apparently, on the fateful day, Haffey had just gotten coked up to give him the rush to do it all by himself because he didn't have anybody to help. Gotcha. Okay. But Susan hadn't known of Mike's desire to have her dead, and she typically worked long hours. She needed him to occasionally look in on their cats, so she left the alarm code without changing it. It was the same code they had always had during their marriage. I see. So on the day that she had arrived home, had come in through the back door, had turned off the alarm, and had been checking the mail before Happy jumped out at her, she had also found a note from her estranged husband, Mike. The note had stated that he had not been sleeping well, he needed to get away, and he was heading to the beach. After leaving the note, and after letting Happy in the house, Mike had rearmed the alarm and left. So he had driven his car to the coast, used his credit card to check into a motel so he would have an alibi, and then returned to Portland the same evening. So basically, he let him in, he left locked up and whatever, and, and then that guy went... just hid out in the basement until he heard sign of life coming upstairs? Like... Yes, I think that's exactly what wow. happened. The next morning, he bought a three fifty seven Magnum revolver at a pawn shop and returned to his father's house. He left a suicide note there and fled again. But the police didn't fall for the suicide note and just continued looking for him. Where they found him was a mental health facility where he claimed to be checking himself in. Authorities put him under evaluation because he had come there. And 11 hours later, he was arrested for conspiracy to commit murder. So they didn't believe he was suicidal. They believed he was just trying to trying to make it look like he was vulnerable and, you know. Going through a mental health crisis. Exactly. Yeah. Which he wasn't. He was just... A loser, and Deadbeat he was caught. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Upon finding this out, the next day, Susan officially filed for divorce from Mike Kuhnhausen. Later, she also filed a $1 million lawsuit against him to ensure that he couldn't scrape together enough funds to, again, attempt to hire a new assassin. Mm-hmm. Despite Mike's claims of innocence, and despite saying just because he knew half he didn't mean he was involved, of course, what are the chances of that? Then how did he get in the house? Yeah. And despite the evidence piling up against him, he knew he was going to be found guilty, so he had already made a big mess of things. And less than a year later, 
On August the 30th, 2007, Mike pled guilty to soliciting Susan's murder. Mike ended up dying in prison in 2014 with cancer taking him three months before he was supposed to be released. But Susan says she is serving a life sentence for picking a bad husband. She said she feels sad that things went the way they did, and she hopes that Mike has finally found the peace he couldn't ever find in his life. Mm -hmm. She still cries when she tells her story. She bought a new house and installed gravel all the way around it so that she could hear anyone approaching the house. She didn't want anybody getting to her without her knowing that they were coming. Mm -hmm. She also bought a gun and took shooting lessons to get proficient. She said she feels conflicted when people call her a hero. The police had given her an award for sheer determination. She had saved so many lives in her time as a nurse, but to save herself, she had to take this one, and that gave her conflict. Susan had never wanted to hurt anyone. She had spent her whole life making people laugh, making friends, trying to help suffering people. But Ed Haffey put her in the position where she had to choose. Mm -hmm. She didn't choose Haffey's death. She chose her own life. After all the facts of the case came out, Haffey's family reached out to Susan with these words. Although this was a terrible thing that happened, no one in this family has any bad feelings towards you. You did what you were forced to do, and in doing so, you spared many from the same trauma you experienced. So they knew that this was his doing and that he got mm -hmm. what he deserved. Susan just wants others to know that they too have strength they don't yet know they have. They too can survive a near fatal attack. She stated, if you can't run and you can't hide, you have to fight. You don't know that you won't survive. She celebrates every bonus day. She celebrates every bonus Aww. breath. This story reminds me of Tiffany Coward, the lady I covered yeah. in episode 18 who fought off the escaped convicted murderer that was trying to force her into the trunk of her own car. Remember that guy? Yeah, the one that beat him with the Yeti cooler. That's yeah, right. That's, that's right. <laughs> Susan said she was fighting with such potency that she was like a power line snapping on the pavement. That's something that both of these women had in common. The will to survive and the absolute refusal to quit, and they were both brave enough to fight for their own lives. And I think that Susan Walters is just an amazing woman. And she wants other people to know that if they get in a situation like that, they have just as much chance to survive it as she did. So she just wants people to try. I have to say, thank God he didn't come with a gun. Thank God she actually had a chance to fight him. Because if he had yeah. been there with something that wasn't, you didn't need to be right up on her, she probably wouldn't have made it. Right. But because she could use her body as leverage and get everything away yeah. from him. Right. She, she won. She won because she was smart. She knew how to mm -hmm. keep calm under pressure like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, working in an emergency room had to be a benefit to her. I mean, beyond just the self-defense training that she had. Yeah, you don't have time to panic. You just right. you do. You, you <laughs> just have to see what, what needs to be done and just do it. Yeah. And so I think that she had everything on her side to be able to survive that. But we've talked about this a hundred times. Everyone should have some sort of training. Yes. Yes. So that you... <laughs> can learn what will work. If she didn't know either self-defense or just the basics of physics, mm -hmm. she wouldn't have known, he's got a hammer, I better get close to him. And your natural gut reaction, 100% every time, is going to be, there's a weapon, I'm going as far away from that weapon as possible. So she literally used her smarts Yes. to completely do the opposite of what her body was probably telling her to do. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like when she got him... Where she had turned his face purple and blue. Mm -hmm. Then she got out. She, she started was to trying get out. to. She was trying to get away, but yep. he woke back up, and so she had to fight again. Yeah. I just love her. I just love her so much. I do love that too. 
You know I love me nurses. You're nurses, <laughs> you love your badasses, you love... I just love women. Not in the way that sounds, but you <laughs> Well, you know, there's something to be said for really supporting the sisterhood. Mm-hmm. And I believe in the sisterhood. Yes, ma'am. Okay, so this week we are finishing episode 30. Mm-hmm. Once again, Murder on My Street. Sorry, Jenny and Dee Dee, I know you guys covered this. You probably did better than me. I'll go ahead and give it to you. <laughs> They're pretty good. They're awesome. And I also, oh, I did just want to say a big shout out to World's True Crime this week. Oh, yeah. This is Talk coming about out. that. Talk about that. So this is going to be two weeks ago when this comes out, but we got a couple of days ago a, a care package. A care package. But we knew that they were sending us a sticker Yeah. with their logo on it, which we obviously were thrilled about. And then we get this package on our front porch and open it up and it's, it's full of Canadian snacks. They sent us so many goodies and they sent like two of everything for us so we could each try everything. Don't be mad if you got a sticker and you only got a sticker because that's still awesome. But we've been really been friends with them for what five months five or six literally months, like almost. within the first month that we even started this podcast yeah. brad and denise have been on our side so, so they've been super supportive and we just love them to death mm-hmm. so thank you world's true crime for that awesome yes. and now we have to get them back <laughs> i told them that they should look for their mercedes to show up <laughs> <laughs> even plus got some yeah plus got some treats you and... can check out her picture on her instagram so we're so awesome. forever grateful go check them out as well i think that's it for us this week as as usual you can find us on instagram facebook or twitter at true crime bnb or you can send us an email with all of your funny or terrifying stories or just to give us a suggestion of something you'd like to hear covered mm-hmm. and keep in mind we don't do the big serial killers we're not going to do something that's been covered a hundred times yeah, we, we really like prefer to. the stories that don't get a lot of press yeah so any suggestions we're open to just something from your hometown we love small town crimes that both people haven't heard about yet. Right. So you can send those to truecrimebnbpod at gmail.com. And if you don't like true crime, I don't know why you're listening, but if you don't, (laughs) (laughs) you can check out Puss's Instagram account at truecrimebnbpuss. Yes. And she'll keep you up to date on all the fascinating things she does. Or at least Mm -hmm. some of them, because most of them just involve snoring and bathroom activities or the majority of her day. Can you imagine if she had a Twitter? I'm licking my feet again. All right, I think that we are done. Yep, and we will see you back here at the True Crime B&B next week on the 31st episode. Oh, this is my birthday episode. Happy birthday, Mommy! Thank you, thank you! She's all of our mom now. (laughs) I'm the den mother. You're the den mother. I'm the den mother of crime family. Thank you guys for being here with us always. And until next time. Thank you, bye. Bye. So these two friends, <laughs> this is going to be a struggle today. <laughs> Jesus Christ. And to anyone who just heard that, she's actually about 50 feet away at the other end of the house. I think she's upstairs. She even bit his dick. Sorry. Well, his genitals right through the zipper of his pants. Okay. Umpqua. Umpqua? Umpqua River.